Um, hey, hi everyone. I'm Ranjan, founder and CEO of Tropic Tech. He um, works in this fabulous space of emotion AI. often seen in Hollywood movies that they use a polygraph machine during interrogation to judge how truthful the suspect is. Imagine if a marketer could use a polygraph test to judge the response of his audience to his advertisement or product. Entropic is a company that makes this possible without needing an actual physical device. In this episode of the Founder Thesis Podcast, your host Akshay Dutt talks to Ranjan Kumar, the founder of Entropic. Ranjan loves solving hard problems and Entropic is solving a truly hard problem of how to read the mind of a consumer. They have built an AI-powered platform that helps companies to decode the emotional state of consumers by using neuroscience and machine learning. This conversation is a masterclass in building deep tech products and scaling them globally. Entropic's most recent fundraise of $25 million is proof of the amazing business that Ranjan has built. Stay tuned and subscribe to the Founder Thesis podcast on any audio streaming app to learn about how to solve hard problems using technology and first principles thinking. So uh, when we were running goeparty.com, we had a payment gateway at our platform called Citrus Payments. And, uh, and, and back then, we were about probably first 10 customers of uh, Citrus Pivots. So um, I got an interview and, and I said that, hey, I, I probably I, I knew how to, you know, uh, take the risk and start. But I had no clue how to scale because I, I had never done sales in my life. And, and sales, one of the most crucial things as a founder that you need to have. My co-founder was a lot more tech savvy. So we knew how to build platforms. We didn't know how to sell back. So um, so, so I started looking out for job and next thing, and then my co-founder as well. So my co-founder landed in Oyo, so he was one of the first guys in Oyo to try their growth function, and and he, had, he later ended up heading the growth function for them. Uh, I, on the contrary, joined. Um, so I got a call from Jitend Gupta. He was like, "Hey, we are uh, just raised from Sequoia, and uh, this." He, Series A had happened and the scale. I think there was back then it was still that basement office in Swati building in Pali uh, and sort of early startup vibes. But uh, I think uh, hearing him was great. He was we met here in Cafe Coffee Day in uh, MG. That was my thirty minute interview with him. Um, and like when can you start? I said that tomorrow. And the conversation was pretty candid, right? So. I was switched in there. And Jitin had a thing about people. I, I think he was, his, I still tell him that super, super sharp about uh, people, uh, how he selects and what he, how he judges them very quickly. So um, I think it was primarily about what I am here for and, and what I'm supposed to get. And what I'm here for was very clear that I want to, I'm going to go back to my entrepreneurial journey. There's a part of my journey that I don't know how to scale and how to scale. So I am here to learn that, right? And then I think uh, Citrus was a fabulous time scaling. Uh, so I was the first guy driving the South business and then had sales as such. So and, uh, this was like uh, selling to e-commerce companies, the, the payment gateway service. Uh, so, so payment gateway services to all sort of e-commerce, consumer internet essentially. And then um, uh, later, later also to the 
quite a bit of B2B SaaS and those kind of but lead is not consumer. So some of the customers over by journey. Uh, so yeah, we, we built out a Bangalore office uh, about hundred people. Overall company scale to sizable five six hundred people. Uh, we got acquired by Naspers, uh, the PayU in two thousand sixteen. Um, culture wise, Citrus was a cool place because for the first time I was having a luxury of actually working with people. Because running my first company was you working alone and kind of. Uh, mm. We have a set of team with whom you are working and while a lot of people who has come from big companies actually cribbed a lot about like, hey, we don't have enough team and people. For me, it was like, hey, this is, this is from one person to 10 people. This is as good as it gets, right? So, uh, and and I think the, there was no playbook, playbook of sales as such back then. It's, it's not that now you have SDR, BDR, MREs and all sort of things, right? Jitin was brutal and he was like, Boss, this is your account and this is your number. Don't don't ask me money for going into events. Just uh, sell it. And how do you sell it? It's, you have you seen how bank guys sell it? You just go. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I sell it. And and I think uh, that very old school of uh, that was my first stint at learning sales. And uh, the only thing Jitin was counting on was hey, this guy has been entrepreneur for two years. He would have learned a thing or two, and uh, I think that was pretty much it. Um, and and I was ready to join tomorrow, so kind of um, started there. Um, I think we did good wins in two years in um, South, and uh, that sort of uh, quite a few countrywide accounts. In fact, uh, right from Mintras to Flipkarts to Amazon, a bunch of it we won, which were which we didn't believe earlier that we can actually win, and and. From, and I think one of the greatest realizations was that when you're selling, you are not selling to companies, you're selling to individuals. Um, and um, and if you think that you're selling to Amazon, it's just dropped head. But if you think that you're selling to a guy who works in Amazon who li- lives next door to you, that's a lot more fast and efficient. So um, I think all those buzz and buzz around goes away and then you're just talking to another person who's like you. So... I think those were some of the early, early sort of learnings I still carry. And uh, that was my time at Citrus, made amazing friends. Uh, uh, and then it was a cash exit. So everyone made money. Um, so, okay, you got uh, equity, like you had ESOPs. And- yeah. So kind of places where ESOP really worked. Now there's a lot more generic concept of it. But earlier, ESOP used to be like just another thing in the Kitty know what valued and uh, uh, so yeah, I think Citrus was fabulous time. And uh, upon exit to Citrus, um, I realized that uh, okay, I probably have learned a thing or two about sales. No, you you left Citrus when it got acquired by PayU. That's right. That's right. Okay. Well, like you you thought that okay, now I've learned enough, so time to get back to entrepreneurship. So two things, I think that one, and as well as. Uh, my clock was ticking, right? So, <laughs> um, this 2016, I've become 30. That's what I talked about from my Wharton call. I'm, I'm five years into it. I think I've learned more than what probably I would have learned going to B school, but I, I probably need to go and reapply. And um, and I could see, uh, I think at a certain point in time, you have too much energy and less of wisdom. There's a time when you have too much wisdom, but less of energy. 
right? So you have to square off and plunge at a time when you have both had decent proportions. So it was a good time. And somehow, since since my ITC days, this thing of time value of things has always been constant to me as in time is a crazy variable to deal with. And unless you play right with it, uh, I, find, I find myself always losing. So uh, I went back to uh, starting my next company after um, Citrus Exit. And what like, did you have an idea in mind or you wanted to spend a few months think and like so I met this uh, person, uh, Mr. Dilip Hart. He was um, a president at, uh, of operations at JSW Group and person in his 50s and with wisdom and, you know, uh, kind of looking to invest in young entrepreneurs and um, and was wanting to be part of it more than anything. And uh, I've never met a believer like him. Um, so this was 2016, early when the exit information was out and the process was going on. So I met him and he was like, uh, we talked about various things um, and various kind of ideas and things. I, I, I think um, it was it was very exciting the way he chose to believe in me over a set of conversations of various ideas and things. And I, I think I earlier thought that probably he doesn't know that much about space and all and I got him tricked. But yes, <laughs> but later I realized is uh, what I realized is that he had this insane ability to read through people, and uh, there's nothing that I was thinking that he was not aware of. But he he sort of uh, he understood that it's fairly in your age you will probably think like that. But I think um, what was fascinating to him was I was thinking of building something which is fundamentally different. And, and very unique and very IP-based and very tech-tech uh, heavy. Um, and uh, and there was a burn about my first company, which was primarily not being able to find differentiator early on. So I was clear that I will tie fighting a problem statement than a competition. No, that's so, a nice approach. Very nice. Uh, and, and it was something that came out of, you know, from the days of my JE preparation, IIT exams, whenever there used to be this very hard papers, right? I, I I was super happy because my margin of error was very high. You know, a hard paper where your cutoffs are ten marks out of hundred. You, I, I can, I will do a lot better in those than the exams, which were easier because here and there, small plus one marks, minus one marks, and you are out of the game, right? So, I I hence always learned that pick a super hard problem. Even if you're solving 40% of it, you're best out there. Um, and uh, that was very counterintuitive to how businesses were done because consumer internet, among my IT peers, the consumer internet was the easiest thing to get started with, right? Or, or even B2B, if you're looking at the CRMs, were the easiest to start, most known. And uh, here I was thinking of going something deep tech, whatever, right? And then... Um, Kind of. So I, I met him and I think very inspiring set of conversation over samosa and jalebis. Uh, I we still fancy his balcony where we have the since uh, And we talked about things and then we bought a whiteboard and one day I was whiteboarding about three hours to him about things that the way this business will grow and what it can potentially be. And then he said that, Ranjan, whatever you will do, I will put in money. Uh, I'm not questioning anymore about what you want to build. That's your call. Uh, 
and uh, he he asked me that uh, why should I um, invest money with you? And I said that sir, I'm about twenty five years richer than you, and uh, and 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 he got uh, aligned with the time value of things, right? And I said that given twenty five more years to me, I'll be at a different place, and given twenty five years. Um, past if you have to go back then you would do things very differently so here's your chance and here's my chance and fascinating sort of conversation and I think that led to me starting this um, company in Tropic so he backed me with about a crore and he put me, um, that kind of faith in me never asked that question again as in what you are doing how business is going good bad ugly horrible days he has always been there Till today is the angel investor, and uh, I kept asking him that, sir, we we, we gotta we gotta pay you back, and he's like, let it be. I know that this will become this that. So amazing, amazing person. So I think his confidence in me was very um, path breaking at that time because I think you always have that sense of doubt, right? And then you believe that somebody who has seen it so much is trusting you with their money in something probably. Um, and uh, yeah, that's how that's how Entropic started. So, but I mean, knowing that you want to do something in deep tech uh, is still quite a distance away from an actual business. Uh, how did that happen? Like, so there were a few philosophies around what I want to do next, and it was more philosophical than um, than actually in the shape of business. But that actually still stays as the boundary conditions around which we built Entropic. Um, so for me, it was. B2B, um, because that's what I want. I knew how to sell to um, enterprise because they've got money. Um, and I don't want to sweat my blood where there's no money. Um, the third was uh, super heavy differentiation. Uh, and, thus, and the best way to institutionalize it was we decided we'll only build things which has got IP value. If there's no IP value, then we'll not build that. So the so my how part was always very clear that if there's a problem I'm not solving it through which is substantially differentiated I'll not do it. Uh, and the last was that it should be large enough problem and sizable enough impact uh, to generate and and hence choose a problem which is not uh, you know uh, a marketer's problem or a product guy's problem but choose something which is a human's problem and um, that is as wide as the market has to be so that. You never walk into a fundraise conversation being asked for, hey, what's your market size? And you don't have a slide, which is well enough, right? And then your top downs and bottoms up and all those kind of things comes in. So, and looking at all of it and thinking a lot more first principally, you know, what I, what I realized is that the world is going to go digital and uh, the nature of conversation is going to change, which means... The way we have conversations one-on-one -on -one and otherwise, we measure a lot of gestures. We measure a lot of, not just about what people said, that's probably about 5% of information, but mostly about how they said it, what they said, what was the gesture, where they attentive, all that stuff, right? And then it stuck to me that as we go digital and everything goes digital, um, this is going to change forever. Uh, how can How can people still have that uh, intelligence in place? And by that, I mean not really businesses have that intelligence, but just me and you having that conversation can have that intelligence. 
And and then it can obviously transpire into various form factors of business and all those will come together. So uh, just thinking at this level and saying that hence there is a need and there's a dire need and likely need of being able to understand human behavior and emotions in its first principle basis at scale. And can we do this? Um, so just this much was known. It was fascinating. It was um, inspiring. It was profound to me. And I felt that um, I want to commit something like this for a good amount of time. And I researched about this space, looked at how many guys have ever cracked this and found my hard problem statement with 10, 10 marks cut off. Okay. So a uh, couple of thoughts I have here. Uh, one thought is I'm getting, you know, you in Citrus, you realize that uh, you're not selling to organizations, you're selling to human beings. So, so that, that would have like created that mindset that it's important to be able to read human beings and their behaviors because that will help you do sales better. So that, that might have been the trigger for this. Yeah. yeah. So essentially when I walked into sales journey of mine, my sales yeah. rate was very high and I, I used to close about 80% of the deal that I'll walk into and uh, against about 30, 40% conversion otherwise. And I think the... And what I realized is that my success, if I'm getting a meeting, if I get to meet someone, I'll definitely end up closing. And and somehow that conviction kept on building over two years. And and I realized a few things where I kept, I, I used to predict whether this guy is going to close or not and see whether this guy closed or not. And then I learned that what are the triggers through which I realized that it is going to close or not. And And those never was things that he wrote in mail or things that he said was always about that odd questions which he had answered in a certain way. Uh, Give me examples of this. Like, um, So um, you had this long chat about pricing and all things and uh, otherwise. And uh, then you have this weird question. Uh, classic example, we're doing this with Common Flow. And uh, that was about an 80 crore transaction volume deal that we are trying to do. Um, and and we are having this conversation with a guy who was a senior product manager. And and pretty much the conversation was went into various things of product and stuff. And then my question was, how do you think the startup is going to do, um, this whole startup space, the way it is happening, is going to do down the road? And he jumped off the table. And, and he talked about everything entrepreneurship around and everything out of space is growing, what is going to happen, what kind of products is going to come. Is it going to be P2P? Is it going to be this, that? All, all sort of stuff he talked about. And he spoke 30 minutes. Um, and then we talked about it as in what I did prior to this. And he talked about what he has done prior to it. It turned out both of us were entrepreneurs who turned into jobs. You know, uh, that one odd conversation. Uh, you knew that he'll convert. Yeah, I knew how he'll convert. And then there were conversations like, I think this guy was a CFO at uh, Zoom car and we were having a conversation. And his question was, I used to always have those, uh, you know, towards the end of the conversation, some trick pointers to see whether he nudges, does not, does not nudge. And to get responses of it with facial gestures and all that coming together was always like, okay, this guy sorted now. <laughs> okay. Those were some of the things that always felt that Selling is a very emotional process. In fact, decision-making is emotional. Um, we have made decisions long before we knew we have made decisions. Oh, yeah. That's so true. Mm. 
And then rest of the time, we are trying to find out our proof points. And who are very intuitive and left brain, they are always parallel thinkers and very, very quick at this. And you see that with limited information, the way they'll be able to make decision is crazy. And um, I, I felt that that's fascinating. That's that can accelerate everything, and, and that's very profound. Looked at so so you know th those were the things sort of when I started. I I felt that you know understanding behavior is going to be so massive, so massive. Hmm. And did you uh, think of the use case for this as uh, like people doing sales over Zoom calls and? Therefore, that uh, because the video is being recorded, so a software could give nudges to the salesperson. Like, did you think of that as a use case for it? Well, obviously, this will only work on video, right? You needed to capture video. No, I, I didn't have the understanding of form factors back then, right? So I was just very con super convinced by the fact that the technology is going to be massive and it doesn't matter what form factor. And... Uh, I, I was 2000% sure that I will build a business out of it. So I went after tech. And to start with, I started looking at, so this is the landscape of emotion or behavior, right? There's brain uh, and you have sense organs. So brain, face, voice, eye, touch, and last is text. So these are the seven ways in which you can ever understand behavior. Because there are only seven things through which we express. Hmm. Right? Just, just go through the list again. Brain. Brain. It's face. It's eye. It's voice. It's touch. And it's text. So these are seven things through which we are ever going to express. I looked at how people are expressing and what kind of intelligence is built into it. So you have NLP for uh, text. So you understand the text, how people have written and what they have written and semantics and things built around it. So a lot of chatbot companies were working on that and that was already an evolving space. And I said that I'm not going to approach from that side. There's a bunch of things about voice also that was happening. And I said that I'm not going to approach things from that side. The most scalable and the easiest and sort of probably the more done dusted space was that much. Uh, the voice and the text in 2016. Uh, and I said that I want a hard problem. I want to solve it in a, in a much more IP capture way. So I started from the other end. So I looked at brain um, because that's the most accurate form factor and, and more defined and proven sort of a thing and truly what people behave um, and can we measure that so uh, in that I looked at this technology called as EEG like electroecmephalogram it has a EEG headband that one can wear it tracks real pulses how your neurons are firing and basically it gives you a bunch of those the raw brainwave data called as frequency ranges and alpha beta gamma wave so when you're sleeping, your alpha is very high. When you're calm, your alpha is very high. When you're anxious, your beta is very bad. Deltas are bad. So there's, there's quite some research work that has happened into it, right? but that, that was never productized. Right? And that's So the first thing we went about building was this software, which plugs when, like, this is like your headphone like that. It's a bag. And it plugs with, uh, like, a Bluetooth with all the EJ devices and, um, sort of tracks on a second by second basis data points like attention, engagement, emotions, happy, sad, excited, relaxed, bored. And then we validated each of it. Yeah. So let's say I'm watching and I, I try to be purposefully very focused and see whether the dialers moves or not. I, I uh, If I'm in a happy mode, I, I do that. In control testing, I get five people uh, disgruntled, create those scenarios and then sort of let them wear that. So kind of 
a lot of immense amount of learning on neurosciences where we went. And uh, the first ever small tool that we created was uh, brain brain mapping based consumer studies, right? So, uh, and the, the Nielsen had a neuroscience lab back then and, and uh, neuro, Nielsen had a company they acquired called as NeuroFocus and used to use EEG devices, but they used to have manually analyzed all this data. So we had a software which gives you end outcome like attention, engagement, emotions, which can be a lot more easily applied. First set of customer and we got using that, we we got part of a we start program, Wirecom 18 had accelerator program. And and we got got into that and we started testing content for them to tell them whether your movie trailers are uh, people are attending attention levels are high at a certain point or low at a certain point or where they are excited, where they are happy. That changed the way consumer testing was, content testing was ever done for them. So we started doing that for their trailer, their episodes, their movies, their um, short form. So we invite the same focus group studies that they used to do, right? But essentially, instead of surveys, we said that, hey, why don't you wear this and do this in a central location kind of environment? Uh, did this for Netflix, we did this for Amazon Prime. We got these were decent clients and Nielsen was outsourcing it to you, something like that. No, no, no. We directly were working with these guys. So okay. we were part of Accelerator, so we got chance to do a couple of projects and then that yeah. led to doing a lot of business with them. Yeah. Same thing we scaled to uh, other ones because you had a case study from Viacom. And, and this Accelerator was in the US? No, this is this was in India. This is Bombay. Okay. Okay, okay, okay. okay. Yeah, and then... then in the same year, we got uh, we became part of SAP Accelerator, Accenture Accelerator, Target Retail, um, and pretty much about eight or ten accelerator programs we were part of. So a lot of giant corporates where um, the the verticals and the horizontals were there, and the, uh, I think we had a depth and uniqueness of the tech, uh, and those two sort of came beautifully to get my first twenty customers um, because. They, they had ready customers who were having these problem statements and these were large all we had to do this is you know this fancy magneto stuff you wear and you talk about it and you show the demo and then everyone loved it right and they tried and they just had to believe the power of tech and when it happens everyone loved it and a lot of them very fascinated coke ceo um we, we met um uh, i think a bunch of bunch of companies ceos who used to come in Accenture, uh, we are the poster guys to actually go out and, you know, fear the headset and do this, right? So this, and it is very exponential in nature. So uh, kind of that happened. And as we started doing and that. What, what was the timeline for this? Like when you got into all these? Uh, was, was, this was 17, 2017. 2016, and so 16 we started, 17 is when. And you were using your uh, cash out from uh, Citrus for funding this. Yeah, yeah. So all, all money that I had got including what my wife had got right so okay. we put it she was like you took out my ease of money you also took out your ease of money right? <laughs> I said that mm. yeah but uh, and uh, then, one more question I want to ask uh, EEG is uh, it's like a very much in use medical device or is it a niche device like like would you if I walked into a Hospital, for example, would I find an EEG there? Like, what's the use case for an EEG? So, so EEG has got various grades, and the med grade of it is something that is being used by most of the neuroscience departments in the hospitals. Um, basically, it's a scanner to your mental activity, and uh, 
you have a clinical grade 512 channel eg which is like a cap with lobes and wires right it's okay there are a lot of connections that they do to your head okay so that is basically to do your it's like a effective scanner yeah. so mri mri is the most is much more upgraded version eg is lot more portable version of that Uh, that's been used clinically and in academia and, and research. Uh, what does a doctor want from a, an EEG test? Like, what does it help him diagnose? So, so like, what like, data does it give to a doctor? So, it gives doctor a data sense of like uh, which parts of your brain are a lot more triggered. If there is any consistent measure anxiety, measure epilepsy, measure dyslexia, uh, those are some of the things that they use it for. Uh, but, but the the, the There is a lot more portable. This was a 512 channel kind of a EEG device, which is a cap and makes you look like a lab rat. But there is a three-channel version of it, which a company as NeuroSky had launched, which is just like a band what can be here and there, like a headphone, right? So it's a lot more portable, and people did find it difficult. Also, clinically, what is being used is wet electrodes. So, but essentially, they'll put in glues like they put in for your um, ECG, like that. There's G, right? And, and this dry version was like very simple band and non totally totally safe and all things right so but no contact with the skin needed like with skin skin in it and those kind of stuff so it was super powerful and then i think building a software stack on is that was uh, immensely valuable uh, and how much does this device cost this this new device which cost it's a hard dollar device hard dollar yeah wow. okay it was very cost effective right so Eight dollar is the cost of hardware, and you can use it regularly over any numbers of sessions. At uh, and a vacuum will pay you bomb for doing this kind of testing with hundred people, right? Mm-hmm. At uh, and and so what we started doing with vacuum was on content testing. What we started doing with Accenture was a lot of UX testing on the website, mobile apps. Um, okay, so somebody would wear that band and. browse a website so you can see if he's getting frustrated by the experience or if he's getting delighted we also understood at what point in time they were frustrated and excited because i was having a screen recording going on so i know that at a point where you have to make a purchase or make this search you are not able to find out right and those are the points where the peaks are coming so it was lot more pinpointed actionable to ux guys content guys and creative director it was very pinpointed okay whenever this character comes in this person goes out of box right it is going searching all the brain wave data so uh the the actionability of it was super critical to them right because in the way every testing and at best you get like uh, a is greater than b these guys are okay what is not working chal gaya nahi raha so uh they, they get a lot more precise well and then we worked with tata consumer care using eeg and what and so today there's a brand called Stata Sampan they were trying to launch it and um, they were struggling with all things right from logo to backers design to all sort of stuff so we did a testing where we created this virtual 360 degree virtual environment and you can you're wearing this oculus and then you're wearing that eeg and you're walking in the store as you're doing so we are tracking your neural response of as you're walking into the aisles of the store so if you are looking at a certain product and your neural senses are going up which means that you're noticing it so we got a very detailed view of uh, how shopper research or shopper study was done so i had content testing or ad testing i had shopper research and shopper testing we have done ux testing and last was uh, we worked with itc because it was my old 
customers for product testing as well. So they had Lays and Bingo and a bunch of these chips as you are eating, what kind of sensory movements are happening and then how do you... Yeah. So, so, so four use cases were ready. UX, uh, product and shopper and ads. As we did so, we had a decent ad hoc business which was project by project running by the time we hit 2018. Um, and uh, we, do, we did about four or five crores of business. And uh, oh, I, I would one more question about the product. Uh, were there like a standard set of parameters on which some sort of graph would be built with a time series on it? Uh, what what were those parameters like? So it was attention. Uh, it was uh, it was engagement. We saw them also call it excitement value as such. Uh, and then there was five emotions, happy, sad, excited, relaxed, and bored. So out, this, out of this five emotions, two are positive, two are negative. So happy and uh, excited are positive. Now happy and relaxed is positive. Uh, bored and sad is negative. And one is neutral. And between happy and relaxed also, one is high intense emotion, second is low intense emotion. So you're looking at a balance to um, intensity kind of a two by two matrix and each of this is one point into that so I, I don't understand that word balance what do you mean by that balance is a measure of uh, positive emotions so high balance is high positive low value is low positive and intensity is how intensely you felt it right so happy is a very positive very high uh, intense emotion but look at relaxed relaxed is a very positive emotion but low in intensity Likewise, bored is a negative emotion, but low in intensity. And um, sad is a extreme end of emotion. So kind of, this is called a circumplex model of emotion. So we started mapping one point in each plot. And, and there would be like a time series uh, and the, the graph would be going up and down. Like at this point, the happy went up or at this point, the sad uh, spiked. And for content testing, even sad would be good, right? Because yeah. often uh, right, they, they want you to have intense emotions be it positive or negative so one of the things we actually uh, broke the myth for uh, some of the content companies including um, when we worked with Star we worked with uh, uh, Viacom and was that there was happy people does not lead to conversions right was <laughs> <laughs> the happy emotion that leads to conversion so I think the learning was and we did a bunch of testing for them. And, you know, one of the creative directors and the CMOs were there. And usually creative people are always very egoistic. That, hey, I have building shows for 25 years. Yes. Right? Don't, don't bring a technology and tell me this. <laughs> so so you can't overstep onto that feed. But kind of, uh, we we got data off about last three projects. And we got in everyone in the room and CMOs and everyone. I said that. So a project here is like a TV show or just an ad film? Like what were you testing? The full series, so, a full movie? We do the pilot episode testing or if the show is not doing good, last few episode testing. You also do trailers or promos, uh, short forms. So you, was, you start at a concept stage when you just have scripts and you are building animatic out of it and from there you test and then you subsequently. Because once you produce something, it's hard to go back. Right. You have gotten paid money to Salman Khan. So, <laughs> okay. so, uh, so, so we, we went to that and I called everyone in the room and we said that here's the most heartbreaking thing that you're going to listen to. And we got in all this data and showed exactly that 
It's not the happy emotion that's driving the content. It's the swing between happy to negative that is driving the content. Uh, so bigger the delta, the more, the better the shows are there for you. And the way we had done is that every time this show shows went air, we actually got the bark rating of theirs and, and tab rating of theirs. So bark has got a rating system that they get every week. Bark rating is like viewership. Is it? Like viewership, how many yeah. people watched? Okay. So you you have your viewership data once the show is live. And they every week they get the data from Bark or Tam. And I and I and we got this data together and we sort of put it together to put a correlation and it showed that ninety five percent time it is matching with the swing between the emotions. So that's massive. And I, I I think more than anything, I used to be very thrilled at these outcomes, right? Like, oh I have part by Eureka moment, this is path breaking, this is disruptive. So I, I got a meeting with CEO of TAM. TAM was a is a computer to Bark. And um, to TAM CEO LV Krishna. What when just just for the listeners to listen. So TAM essentially has viewers all over the country, like anonymous viewers, and they install some device so that they can track what the viewer is watching. And then they create a rating for uh, different shows, like this show was viewed how much it, or they give some sort of ranking or something like that. Yeah, so I, I met LV Krishnan, uh, TAM CEO, and I showed the same outcome to him. And he was um, jumping off his chair that, uh, hey, this is this is massive because this has got ability to uh, first time being so province science-wise kind of uh, positioning of rating system that has not happened. Um, and, and also some of these companies like TAM and Bark were put under scatter for a long time in terms of are you really getting the rating right, right? Like broadcasters to continuously put that pressure on them. And at, while they do their job, but uh, there's a, it's, it's a, essentially a sample group data. So, um, kind of, and they have a very wide panel coverage. So what we did a project with TAM was we ran this test of uh, content. So they had a huge repository of content. And they also had a huge number of panel. And TAM is a Nielsen subsidiary. Uh, it's a J Nielsen and Kanter. So we we did with their panel a large set of exercise of benchmarking where with over 100,000 users we went about testing about 150 odd shows with them and then we created a benchmark around which we got the results and 92% time we were able to correlate what leads to what and, and we tried to reverse engineer that to create a predictive system and get a content in and can I predict whether it's likely to do good or not and what are the elements which is not likely to go, do good? And um, we could we could find that to a fair a good judgment. Um, and uh, so you uh, put the device on hundred thousand viewers. That is massive. Oh, like. no, no. So hundred thousand users across a period of a year, right? Okay. So we, uh, so a lot of this were uh, already their panels, right? The various projects that they would do. So. We got it and then for about 150 odd content, we did this. So each content is watched by a certain number of people, right? 100 D or 100. So we did this and we got this data together. And, and with that, uh, we found it very exciting. And we went back to a um, lot of these broadcasters and, and they liked what we do. And creative directors hated us because you have the critical system of what is likely to work and not work. And, and there's an art to it and there's not an all, only science to it. So all this kind of... And we took our positioning saying that we are just a voice of customer. We're not saying what to do. We're just presenting things. And 
So I, I think that was a that was a great learning. But as as we went about this, right, and I think one of the things that you realize that there's a lot of manual stuff, right? So you have uh, this was purely science driving value, and and see as a process of doing this for a year and a half. I think, and and I was very fascinated about the first principle reasoning. I always felt that scale all things will achieve all that is fine, but at the first principle level, is the value enough proven? Is it disruptive enough? Um, and and is that value substantial for those guys to pay money, right? And what is that quantum money looks like? Uh, and what is the acceptance of the outcome? And is it consistent enough? These are the things that I wanted to check from a use case value proposition, right? And at a highest level to a CMO, to a creative director and stuff. Once I had these data point, and when we were saying about, uh, there's a show for which we did this, the show went uh, live, it started seeing 3x viewership than it was in the past. Um, there were promos on which a million dollar was spent prior to the launch and they had six version of the you know promos various kinds of trailers that are coming out and we selected that these are the two that you got to bet your money on and uh, we saved about $350,000 at a scale of 1 million so 35% kind of ROI left on our decision making by bringing data into the picture right so that is the value that we got substantiated and um, it was it was massive to see with consumer care, Tara consumer care. We could see them making a decision where the new pack has got forty seven percent more pickup lift from the stores, and and this is the Star Bazaar store for which they had the track of data. Uh, they launched subsequently that whole pack design for about thirteen thousand SKUs. So basically, with Tata consumer care, uh, we could got, get about package design insights was giving me forty seven percent more lift. Uh, on pickup rates, the launch rate was 13,000 SKUs and the value was proven with Accenture. Um, all this process took about three years to us and 2018 was a time when the value proposition was very clear to us. Like this is strong value. And then for the first time, I downloaded the consumer research market landscape and market size report and I saw that. <laughs> till, till then it was just, uh, okay, I, I don't know enough because I didn't want to know. I, I didn't want to know what sales because I just want to figure out myself. And about that, it's a $80 billion market consumer research. There are two ways it has been done. One is surveys where I ask you a question of A, B, A versus B, what you like on a scale of 10. People have always answered 8.5 and you don't get a clear actionable. The second is I do this focus group discussion and interviews where you get a bit of wise, but then people say what you want to hear. So bias is a big problem. Automation is a big problem. Um, so then we looked at more market way of doing things. And uh, meanwhile, 1718, we learned that hardware is going to be inhibited to scale. So how can I get the same outcome using um, without the hardware, right? So I start looking at computer vision, the facial coding. Um, using camera, can I analyze the face expression? The companies like Effective and realized it were tried in past, looked at their papers and stuff, understood their bottlenecks. Um, all of them had drained trained on face image data sets. So the face we analyze 58 odd gestures and expression and that is what the model is built on. We had an advantage of brainwave. So uh, we went about cross-training face, facial coding data, face expression data with brain data, which means um, what a face is saying at any point in time and what my brain is saying at any point in time. This, does this match? Does this vary? Uh, and then my training model should comprise of cross-training these two. It solved two very state-of-art problems that no one ever has solved. One is, how do you deal with poker face? Um, 
and we realized that there is a set of micro expressions for which we had never been able to label because it was not possible to label. There was no reference point source to label. But when you have a brainwave data, you were able to label. Um, second, we were able to deal with cultural nuances a lot better. Of a Caucasian face versus a different kind of face actually had very different meaning to things. But uh, fortunately, unfortunately, brain is constant across human race. Face is not. So you can bring a lot more robustness into your data model. And we ran this test and we lead to cross-passing some of the accuracies um, than anyone ever had. Um, so facial coding, this is how we got built. As we built facial coding, because we are capturing the face expression. One, one question. Uh, from, uh, like, this is machine learning uh, through which you built this. Uh, that takes a lot of data, right? Uh, so, so that meant that you were recording videos of people as uh, they were doing the market research, like somebody uh, who is testing a UX. Yeah, what we started with while we were, no, we were just doing brainwave mapping. But what we started with doing is uh, saying that uh, this was a lot more controlled test where we invested to get in users and do these tests where I will capture both brainwave data and face data. Um, take the user consent to do that both. So this was the process for us to get that. And, and it was an investment from our side. Um, as we got to that point from facial coding, a certain level of maturity, we realized that uh, from facial coding, what you get to understand is that, let's say this video is running at 5th second to 12th second is where your attention is low. But in that 5th to 12th second, there's so many frames and things coming. Can my insight be more granular? And then we started looking at eye tracking. So eye tracking gives me ability to tell you heat map wise where exactly people were looking at any particular point. So uh, that gives me a sense now that, okay, when your attention was low, you were looking at Shah Rukh Khan and not the product. Um, and uh, likewise, when you are in UX, when you're looking at the product image or reviews is when your attention was highest. And likewise, in package design, you were actually looking at Sanjeev Kapoor in that Tata Sampan package brand than anything else. So with that, what exactly was driving that is what eye tracking brought in. So that's how facial coding and eye tracking together become the most powerful combo. And with all the customers, we replaced uh, brainwave mapping to these two, proving out that this gives the same outcome at scale. The only thing that we had to do is increase the number of respondents a bit. I, brainwave mapping used to be with 30 people. This was happening with 150 people to capture a larger frame. Uh, we are about 92% accurate in each of these technologies. We launched world's first mobile-based eye tracking um, and, and power of multimodal emotion, which is brain, face, voice, to, uh, eye together, I think has always been our winner. Gartner quoted as world's first multimodal emotion AI player. Um, and, and some of these happened. And uh, 19 is when we launched a platform called as Effect Lab, which is a more SaaS platform, consumer research SaaS platform, which takes care of all your content testing, ad testing, shopper research, package testing, all that stuff at one platform. And it's a SaaS and we said that, hey, head of consumer insights, here's a product which is a one-stop solution replacing all your surveys that you have been doing for past. And uh, this sells to CM organization within brands. They have the larger appetite. Same to content and broadcasting industry. Uh, and the same carve out of that, we call it Affect UX. That is something we sold to all the digital first companies on their product and to say that you have a user research team and a UX team. This might not more insights into how you actually do 
and this become my SaaS proposition, so to say. Um, so 19, we launched Fact Lab. 20, we launched Fact UX. When, uh, I want to understand these products a little better. So uh, how it would work is like if I land on a website, then the website will take permission to view my camera feed. And so, as I'm... The, the way it works is that essentially, let's say a consumer insights manager of a PNG wants to test out ad. They, they configure all that and launch. The link goes to the user. So we have about 60 million respondents across 120 countries as part of my platform. So now we're dealing with all online users, no offline stuff, right? So um, these users will get a link. You click on that link. It asks for camera permission. Uh, you turn the camera and you watch that. That's it. As you watch that, I track your face expression, eye movement, all that. And I have that all that coming into the dashboard. So to brands, they can see slice and dice data the way they want. Um, likewise, and doesn't matter. It was ad and hence uh, ad testing had it been a UX or a package design. The only this we can do is product testing because product testing is a, like you're eating laser, having coke. Yeah. Okay, right, right. That, the, while while consumption is happening, that that is hard to okay. Yeah, anything audio, visual, and stimulus is what we can. So uh, that is what the SaaS platform is about. So Effect Lab, something that we launched and in. How did you build a sixty million uh, pool of respondents? We we didn't build the companies which are in business of building the panel. So you have Dynita, Lucid, Sint. These are the guys who, anyways, these brands use. What we did was we natively integrated all their panels in our platform and all taken together. This is the size. For what matters to brand, they're getting all respondent at one place. So that, that's that's what we do. So uh, like like the brand needs to pay these panel companies separately and pay no. you separately. No, they pay us. We take care of everything. Okay. 2019 was a fake lab. Uh, launched it as a fast platform. First time hired a sales team. Till, till then, we didn't have a sales team ever. I was the sales guy with few uh, SDRs as such. And, and was, we are not trying to sell, we are trying to see the value. Uh, and uh, 19 onwards, we started selling. Uh, and Effect UX was launched in 2020. As we launched these two things and pandemic hit, uh, and, and while these were scaling in its own, and we got sales team and GTM motions and all things together, something very interesting happened during pandemic. In addition to quantitative service that people used to do, which got replaced by Effect Lab and Effect UX respectively, people were also doing this qualitative research, right? So your direct interviews and focus group discussions. And also, uh, so, so that, that all went remote. There was no focus group discussion which was in person during pandemic. And people could see that it is 50% cheaper, it's a lot more fast, a lot more detailed. Brands were loving it. And it is coming at such low cost with software. The company like Suzy and people are using Zoom and Teams and all this stuff that people started using. And that was a massive surge of volumes. So every brand started talking to us that, hey, do you have something around this? And I remember that your facial coding and eye tracking, can you analyze this video conversations and stuff? And quickly pivoted to start investing into voice because voice was the missing component. Uh, and uh, we said that we have brain, face, eye, get into voice. So with voice, what we did, speech, speech to text is done dusted. So we bought third parties and voice tonalities where we started putting our R&D efforts to say that it is not just about what is being said, it is about how it's being said. Uh, so and in about six months into pandemic, we were done with voice tonality to a greater bit because the data was already there and we had validation mechanisms already in place. So 
first version of voice tonality we got out and 2020 is what, what, uh, what are the voice tonality also measures those same five parameters that you mentioned okay. voice tonality basically measures two things uh, it's uh, it's basically to do with confidence score which means what is the truthness in what you are saying right with what confidence you are saying what you're saying uh as i might say i like the pepsi or i can say i really like the pepsi right so these are d- different things to say but so kind of uh, we analyze voice tonality and then um the so you said two uh, things sec- one is confidence what's the second second is more of a directional emotion which is positive or negative by uh, voice okay. tonality okay 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 and um, so kind of and this uh, was again machine learning like trained through okay. machine learning no? learning this again machine learning okay uh, our facial coding how, like, how was the data labeled like uh, uh, you you need labeling right you need draw data and then you need some labeling for the algorithm to learn yeah so fortunately we had a fair bit of recordings from from our past uh, uh, whatever qualitative interview that used to follow after content testing that we used to do and and we had those and we and we had also corresponding outcomes in terms of emotions so uh, by by brain and face right so that became my friends point to begin with and that got and some of these cross training sort of got us faster uh, than anything and then subsequently we obviously went about having our own labeling mechanisms and things and uh, we are voice is still a work in progress but i think we fairly solved to a certain extent that the speech to text was fairly done dusted so we looked at the major stacks and we sort of got them together so with these together we said that okay all the consumer interviews that's happening is a quick upsell for me to all the customers existing customer brands that we work with so we launched something called as a decode as a product it's launched in 2021 what it does is that it allows you to and it plugs with whether you are using zoom teams uh, any of the video conversation platform uh it essentially you can take those interviews there it essentially streams in all videos from there all that comes together in this one single library and it analyzes your face voice speech to text everything and and things which are of relevance it picks it up creates highlights so you have a auto generated sort of a dashboard which gives you a quick sense of what actually happened in the conversation and then became like a super hit for all the brands uh for their qualitative research of what they were using zoom interviews then they'll send someone to transcribe will give them an insight and put a ppt now you have a single system of recorded intelligence within your um system itself right so one of the things is brand always get from agency ppts they were like how can intelligence sit at my end because every next year i do the same project which i did last year so uh, so that that's been our event so far and, and how does it work like is it that in the zoom call itself there is an agent uh, like an entropic agent which is participating yeah so there are two ways it works one is, is it upload no so there are two ways it works one is that you can um, upload videos can on on my platform decode and it analyzes everything second is you can authenticate your zoom account we have a plugin already so you authenticate and any conversation that happens through that agent is comes to uh, our repository over here so it's a pull basically uh, and the third way is that we also have our own video conferencing platform so essentially you can run everything on my platform and and it automatically sort of streams in everything uh give that flexibility to customer because we realize that you are in some platform zoom and teams you are not going to switch today so kind of have that choice 
Ours is built with a lot more focused group approach with moderations and things built into it. But inside component is all the same for all all means. So um, this is how this is how Decode works. And uh, uh, twenty one December we launched uh, about twelve percent of our revenue is actually today done by uh, in Decode. Uh, and uh, as we go forward, what it looks like is uh, so what we are covering is the CMO and CPO bucket within the brands. And and something very interesting happening as we launch Decode. This brings back to your first question that you asked, right? How do you how do you analyze sales conversation? This is a straight fit, right? And then massive amount of inserts into leads, which is asking about can I use this for sales and contacts into conversation? Because all sales conversations have gone remote. And I want two things out of it. Can you can you help me insights with training my sales guys? Or can you help with uh, getting the purchase intent of the lead? These are two things can I do. So um, we are thinking of CMO, CPO, at product, and now sales organization to power. We also get a lot of interest from uh, hiring functions. Can I use this to analyze the video resumes or uh, candidate interviews and all? We are not yet touching it; still a very open kind of topic. But I think sales looks a lot more immediate. Um, the question of why we didn't go to sales first, we we went to. We went to businesses where we have a tighter consent, right? If I through panel, I have a tighter consent. Sales conversation, we are still not accepted that, hey, how come you go about analyzing my facial expressions? Yeah, in, in 2017, it was unimaginable. Yeah, but post-pandemic, I see that moment being there. But while you still store your contacts into call recordings, people are still fighting that um, for, for whatever purpose training and purpose that we the same. I think that Consent is where it was, right? And then we are trying to time our uh, things around it. Uh, so yeah, I think uh, that's where we are. I think we have perfected tech to a fair bit. Uh, I think last three three years has been taking it to various product, uh, shaping up and sort of uh, taking it out market. Today we operate in four geographies, US, Europe, Southeast Asia, India plus Middle East. These are the four PLs for us. Uh, 70 people, 80 people sales team. And uh, about uh, 120 people uh, engineering product functions, about 200 people at company. In the process of doing so, we have about 17 patents. Uh, we raised two rounds of capital uh, and then kind of uh, built a fairly, uh, fairly, fairly uh, amazing set of uh, uh, leadership team which is driving each of these geographies and growth and um, sales and success and product as such. So feel that we are a lot more ready for um, next week. Mm-hmm. Like we've got to go. Uh, I want to ask one or two questions on product and, and then I'll come to the other area. So uh, this is a pure self-serve product. Like uh, what is the customer journey? Like do they sign up, sign up for a, like a, is it like a freemium sign up for 15 day trial and then you, or like, tell me about that. Like, so it's not a freemium. It's a very super enterprise product. So it's a very demo-led mm-hmm. for subscription, um, uh, where where you do demo and at large enterprise you might have a small POC to be done and then you sort of get it. But by usage, it is fairly straightforward. You log in and you can do everything together. So it's very simple. You go and create a campaign of your launch it, 
get all the insights together. So create a campaign, like say, I want to test a piece of content. So then I'll upload that piece of content. I'll choose the demographic. Correct. You will choose the demographic. You want to set out some sort of a post survey also. You can cap, you want to capture something, you want to capture some and all that you can do. And you can launch the test and uh, the results will start coming in together. Uh, as the results are in, you can dashboard automatically and allows you to analyze data by user types and you can compare between ad one versus ad two versus ad three or past project or campaign. Um, you also have a benchmark scores of ours. Like we have tested hundred thousand odd videos in past. So you will get to that within, within let's say personal care as a category, what does benchmark of a fake lab score looks like and then how far or good I am against that, right? So it gives you a sense of how good or bad this is. Uh, and then you get a time series graph of deep dive analyzing as in what people actually love this like. Then I track map of where people were looking, not looking. You want to aggregate by elements within the video you can do so, which means I want to know how many times people look at Shah Rukh Khan can know that. Uh, so you can circle the objects and those object files and insights is what you can have. Uh, and then uh, the, the, this insights, all of that you can bundle and drag and drop and you can get a insights report generated. Uh, you can collaborate with your uh, other teams within the organization, uh, within the platform itself to actually get all of this set up uh, and share these insights. Uh, so fair amount of collaborative element built into it. Uh, doing a, a decode kind of a qualitative research. So both the research sits at one end. So for you, it is a single source of truth across all customer views and insights themselves. So it's a self-serve tool, but I think brands are transitioning from, uh, particularly Indian brands are transitioning from more agency-led models to this. So we have a customer uh, customer success team which sort of onboards them for three weeks and a little bit of uh, hand-holding is there. Uh, so not not like a fully self-served, but with a fair amount of uh, customer success support, they are doing it right. You also said that uh, you are looking to judge purchase intent for sales conversations. What would be the way to do that? Like, So probably the same as what Decode is today, right? Uh, you have qualitative interviews. Instead of that, you will have sales conversation. So essentially, you stream in all these video conversations that People are having sales reps are having analyze all that and uh, and basically make sense out of it in terms of uh, what expressions are the winner expressions and what expressions are not the winner expressions. Uh, that gives you a sense of intent. And second is uh, if there are hundred sales guys that are using this product, essentially, what the best sales guy is doing on their voice modulation and their way of representation and pitching that the other guy is not doing. Things like talk time. Who's speaking how much? Uh, are you listening even or not? Uh, even to the extent of what was said with what confidence level. Probably you're saying a lot of things, but not with a high confidence. Or things like you're not cheerful, right? People want to see cheerful people. Uh, or or you were hesitant or uh, sort of distressed at certain point in time in your conversations. Can you can you can you make that right? Or, and what that was exactly leading to. How do you respond to objections that came from a customer call? So I think um, those those are the things that are powerful values. Have you uh, built that algorithm that, which can predict or is it work in progress? Like it's currently being trained. No, so there's no, this, this is a pure analytics, right? So I'm, I'm 
just want to build a system which provides you insights about where people were hesitant, where they were excited, where they were not, right? And then the next step will come as in what together as characteristics it means to have a winning conversation. So I think mm. right now we are still at an analytics level than a predictive or a prescriptive level. I want to understand uh, uh, how you uh, scaled it up from the perspective of selling. Like, you know, sure. you, sure. you have a global presence now. How did you scale it to different countries? What is the way in which you, is it through digital marketing or is it through like, uh, uh, you know, like a salesperson who reaches out and... Yeah. Yeah. So no, we, we, we sort of, what we did was we got a first set of team of SDRs in place to begin with and um, that was serving across years. And then we were part of about 10 to 12 accelerator programs from where we were getting early customer access and we were able to demo and pitch to them. So Accenture had the bunch of customers, SAP had the bunch of customers. And, and that became our primary first point of connecting, initiating and having conversation with customers. Uh, that was the first GTM motion we ever did to launch into newer markets. And uh, as we got a few early set of customers into each of these geographies, when we actually went about uh, hiring a team into these geographies, uh, and largely these teams have been guys who are selling software to brands in the past. Uh, so pretty much guys who have done SaaS enterprise and all that and build a fair amount of team out, that, uh, out with each of these guys. So my AEs and sales directors and VPs are all in respective regions. Um, my um, SDR team is based out of India. And um, that's how that's how we operate. Uh, what is the difference between SDR and AE? Uh, SDR is the one so, who... Like, so SDR is a prospecting team whose goal is to build outbound. Uh, pipeline. Yeah, outbound. And, and they build pipeline. The sales qualified outbound value is their KPI. And the A team sort of takes it up from there and sort of tries to convert it. And A team has got a number quota. Uh, this is your quarterly targets and stuff. So uh, both of them have different goals. I think the the skill sets are very different. And I learned back from my sales days that prospecting is a very different skill. If you run wider than that person, person who is to close should never prospect, uh, which means that yeah, because if you're prospecting and you're only closing, then you are more interested in closing than prospecting. And uh, you are very likely to ask for marriage in the first date. <laughs> nobody, nobody likes that, right? So, uh, you, you, you see this tendency in sales guys that they will get into the first kills and there's like, hey, here's here's emotion AI, his facial coding is the most amazing thing ever happened on the planet. Yeah. And, and you would you like to marry me? And they're like, no, not yet. Not yet. Hold on. Right. So prospecting is nice and easy. Just go have a conversation. Don't try to close. Uh, okay, Pro prospecting, uh, the goal is to say, okay, would you like a demo? Uh, yeah. uh, th that's the goal of prospecting. Okay. Yeah, you, you have that and you, you have that demo and just say that. Uh, so I think the difference between uh, the services selling or the selling that we used to do in past was, hey, uh, I, what is your need? I, I'm here to solve that. Versus now saying that, hey, I've built this. Do you need this? Right, and then if if you are not, then thank you. It was great catching up and move quickly. So finding the right guy is a lot more valuable than actually going about solving everything that a customer might have. So the service to product mindset and hence the sales alignment to it is super. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, the AEs are the account executives are the ones who convert the deal. Then do you have like a customer success team which yeah, does the yeah. 
ஹேண்ட்ரோல்ஸ்ட்டமர்ஸ்ட்டமர்ஸ்ட்டமர்ஸ்ட்டமர்ஸ்ட்டமர்ஸ்ட்டமர்ஸ்ட்டமர்
So as a founder, do you see yourself as the product guy or the sales guy? Or oh, you know, like what is your role? Uh, my role is, I've been always a sales guy, but I think these days, uh, these days, I, I I think I'm trying to be a good listener and better judge of people and culture. Um, that's what I've tried to focus on. But uh, always been a sales guy. But I feel that I connect to sales a lot more than anything. Yeah, and, and what, what were some of your like top three learnings in this journey of building and trust? Things which you realized that you needed to change in yourself. Yeah, I think uh, first was letting it go, right? Um, that you can't do everything yourself and hence however passionate you are about something, you have to have people who do it better than you. And, uh, so that was first and I think the something which is very close to you, letting it go at times becomes hard and, and that does not scale as well. So I think let, what makes you great in early days does not make you efficient down the road. So um I think those those were those that's, that was important. Uh, I think second was the 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 lighter you are on your feet, the better you are likely to do. So your ability to shift gears in the day is, is super important. On a very turbulent day, can you stay calm and then quickly be very um again back to turbulence? Can you handle that? So that was just my personal uh, growth element to be able to maneuver through that. Is managing your managing your emotion as a superpower. Um, if you can do that, that's amazing. I don't think I'm great at it yet. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, and it consumes your time, right? Like as a startup, it consumes your time. Third thing which I learned is that, um, I think it is not a new learning, but it always stayed true that time is a crazy variable. Uh, be very cognizant of uh, timing the magnitude of disaster is uh, nothing in comparing comparison to timing of disaster so it's a small thing bad timing can screw up so bad as compared to a huge thing on okay time so stay very upright and uh, cognizant to timing that's that's sort of my point is it means that that's just something i feel as founder uh, i gotta be doing that very often amazing like being intuitively aware of whether this is good timing, bad timing of decisions of things happening and so on. Yeah, yeah. Like that's something which you developed as a founder. Yeah. I feel that, you know, most of the decisions that I see I've made or I try to make, uh, you are doing that with very limited information. And I think you can never make a correct decision in, in, in its totality. So the only thing you can really have a good gauge on, is it the right time to make this decision or not? And is it a delayed time to make this decision or not? If you are, if you're 100% on that, and if you're even 30% on the quality of decision, you will do good. Uh, so time is a, most of the time, missed out dimension of decision making. I think, um, wow. Fascinating. That's amazing. And that brings us to the end of this conversation. I want to ask you for a favor now. Did you like listening to this show? I'd love to hear your feedback about it. Do you have your own startup ideas? I'd love to hear them. Do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in this show? I'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests. Write to me at ad at the podium dot in. That's ad at t h e p o d i u m dot in. 